Welcome to What's Eric Eating, Culture Map's weekly look at all things Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. I have Keith Goldston and Julie Dalton from The Post Oak coming up in a little bit. But first, I'm joined by my co-host this week. He is a Houston hospitality veteran and a co-founder of the Houston Barbecue Festival. Michael Fulmer, welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm fantastic. Still recovering from the NFL weekend, but doing well. Yes, it was very exciting, uh, but we should uh, we should dive right into the news of the week. Okay. Topic, topic number one, big burger news. Hot Dotty Burger Bar has acquired Grub Burger Bar to create High Bar Hospitality, which now operates 50 locations, uh, 31 in Texas, and then, you know, a few others in Georgia, Florida, California, places like that. Uh, Michael, let me put it to you. Do you have an opinion about Hop Dotty and or Grub Burger? And and if so, you know, what do you what do you think of this as a, a fit for the two companies? I think it makes sense for both the companies. Startup costs have really, really soared as of late, you know, not in the least because of COVID and supply chain issues. So to have pre-existing structures, you know, brought into fold. And sharing in the profits, you know, seems like a good combination for the both of them. Um, and Grub seems to be growing pretty well. I've, uh, uh, you know, I've never had Grub Burger. I've had Hop Dotties several times, uh, both here and in Austin. Uh, and a mutual friend of ours, Nathan, had always just was always pushing me to go try Hop Dottie. And I'm like, I'm in Austin. I'm not going to have a burger. There's too many other good things. So finally, on a long weekend, I did. <laughs> it was so good. I went back the next day. Uh, although I must say as of late, my last few experiences at Hop Dottie were not up to their usual standards. Yeah, I have to say I, it has been some time since my last visit to Hop Dottie, And I wonder a little bit, you know, part of what always defined the Hop Dottie experience was that there's always a line. And, and I just wonder if in a pandemic, like my, patience for standing in a line to eat has sort of evaporated and and I've just, you know, and so it's just, it's been a while and, and they've pivoted, obviously they do, they do cocktails to go, they do burger kits to go, you know, they've been very adept at kind of giving people some version of the hop dotty experience, but, but, you know, I, I haven't been to a hop dotty in a while. I, I have enjoyed burgers there in the past, but I can't speak to its current quality. And I'm kind of in the same boat for Grub Burger. Uh, you know, I've, I've been to Grub Burger in the past. Uh, I haven't been to Grub Burger recently, but they do, you know, they're, they're sort of upscale, you know, better burger concepts with full liquor licenses, boozy milkshakes. You know, they make their buns in house. They use good quality ingredients for their toppings. And so just from the perspective of kind of the way the brands are structured, it makes a lot of sense to me that these two companies would link up. Yeah, most definitely. They Hop Dottie did a really aggressively priced, and when I say aggressively priced, really well-priced, you know, to-go burger, like a take-home and cook burger that I think you're familiar with um, the first couple of months of pandemic. Um, and that was, you know, that was a good experience doing that at home. But, you know, we're not going out for burgers to get them and take them and bring them home. That's more of an isolated experience for the majority of us. And part of what defined the experience for me wasn't just the incredible quality of the burger, was also the really 
the solid team uh, service experience. And that was uh, that was that was lacking the last two times I went, um, you know, got motion to tables that hadn't been clear, that were still covered, that were wet. You know, the food orders didn't work correct. Um, you know, they got it right, though. They got it right. And will I go back? Yes, I'll go back. But like I said, the last two experiences were subpar, to be sure. Yeah, I, I think if anything, this is sort of a, a reminder that it's, you know, probably due for another hop revisit, whether that's to the River Oaks District location or maybe to the one in Rice Village. But, you know, I, I will say, you know, our friend Nathan, who you mentioned, you know, clued me into something, which is to get sort of the plain, you know, they're known for their elaborate toppings and this and that. But the the real pleasure is in getting a sort of a plain hop burger and then getting their green chili queso and just dunking the burger straight into the queso. That's the <laughs> ultimate hop dotty hack. Yeah, it's a winner. All right, let us move on to topic number two. The Cookery, a Dallas-based cooking school, has opened a Houston location uh, right near Taft in West Dallas, like very close to where Blue Dorn is. Michael, I'm not a big home chef, so a, a, a cooking school has sort of limited appeal to me. But, you know, people who follow you on Instagram at former HOU know that you cook at home quite a bit. So let me just let me just ask you, like, what sort of classes or what would you what about a cooking school would appeal to you that would make you more likely to sign up for one of their classes? Well, for me, it's something beyond my skill set or something that works within the framework of what I can execute, but just haven't tried before. Uh, sometimes we we develop our own ideas or maybe even misconceptions about how hard something can be. I've never made pasta before, and I know they have like pasta making classes. Uh, the friends I know who make it just look at me like, dude, it's easy. You know, for me, it's more like I just, you know, counter space obviously is an issue, too. But that that to me would be a lot of fun to go and do a pasta class, uh, you know, and. And they're they're being smart about it. Like they're taking you from inception. They talk about it. You make it in class. You get to eat it in class. They're keeping the class sizes limited. You know, I think under fifteen people, uh, which makes for a better experience. Uh, Sur La Table is one of the sort of local places that has had great success with local cooking schools. You know, giving a variety of classes through the week. You know, usually a little heavier on the weekend when the majority of people are available. And then doing different themes, uh, you know, like obviously, you know, concentrating when you're around Valentine's Day, uh, doing something for that. Things like the classic steakhouse experience, which you think, okay, okay, I cook a steak, I make a salad. But those actually prove to be rather popular and do well uh, in that. And, and looking at their schedule, they, they're being pretty smart about that. They're, they're not going too off the fringe. You know, we're not getting... Um, you know, Cambodian vegetarian night, that kind of thing. Although I would go to that, but still um, there's even a cocktail class. So, you know, it's got a good location. So I, I wish them well. Um, I don't know if anything really jumps out for me other than the pasta class, but that's just me speaking. I think for each person, just kind of look at it and see if that appeals to you. It's also these kind of classes also do well as sort of like a date night experience too, whether it's, you know, an established couple you know, or a new thing, um, they proved to be popular for that. And so, uh, 
you know, Sur la Table only can fit so many classes and, and pandemic has changed a lot of the format, you know, on that or rather the timing of it. Um, so I think there's definitely room for somebody else to do that. Um, and I wish them well. Yeah, no, I, Central Market is kind of the other the, the other big one that comes to mind. I know they've got a very popular cooking school with a bunch of classes. I, you know, I, I do think that that the cookery is really onto something by kind of focusing on meals and techniques. Uh, like you said, a small class size, no more than 14 people, you know, and it comes with, in, in most instances, some sort of beverage pairing, wine, cocktails, or a mix, you know, 125 bucks a person. That's about what you would spend, you know, on dinner, maybe at a nice restaurant. So if you do it as a couple's thing, it, it becomes like a, a shared experience. I, I, I think, you know, I think the approach is good. And of course I like that they've had some success in both Dallas and Fort Worth, but yeah, it does seem like, you know, an appealing new option, uh, particularly for people who are, like you said, who, who have a certain repertoire of dishes, maybe they're a little bored or maybe there's a specific skill they want to learn. And if this gets people cooking more, you know, sometimes just getting over that initial apprehension or anxiety about doing that, or maybe you're going to do a, a dinner party and you want to like, Hey, I want to develop this, this dish or this skill set. You know, that's a, anything that gets them in the door doing that um, will just usually serve as more of a motivation for them to, you know, do more on their own, you know, which is I, always a good thing. You know, I remember having the, debate with my father back in the day when he was just kind of looked down at the Harry Potter books, you know, being this kind of English literature snob about it. And I'm like, dad, if all these people, all these children are reading these books, it's just, it's inviting them into the world of literature, inviting them into the world of, of reading. And that's, they'll just do more of it. And this is kind of that same, that same kind of entry level, I think. And that, that's a good thing. Absolutely. All right. I'm going to say that does it for the news of the week. We'll be right back with a very special Restaurants of the Week segment. Stick around. So, Michael, for our Restaurants of the Week segment, we want to do something a little bit different this week. There are uh, sort of caught up on new restaurants, and we've both been kind of busy, so we haven't had as many opportunities to dine together. So instead of talking about one specific restaurant, I have asked you to prepare a list of your favorite burgers, and you and I are going to have a burger draft. We're going to pick, uh, each of us are going to pick our five favorite Houston burgers. We'll go one by one, talk about what we like about them, and I know burgers are always a popular topic of debate. I know we've got a lot of new burgers. I know we have a lot of classic burgers. And so I think this will be a lot of fun and maybe we'll get some, uh, some conversation going among our listeners. Without so, a doubt. I mean, we, we say that in Texas, you know, your birthright of, of being in, in Texas is you, you know, have an opinion about barbecue. Well, burgers, like that's like universal across the country and everybody has a favorite burger. And whereas like in barbecue, you might have something, you know, that I like to call destination worthy. You know, we're going to, I'm going to drive for an hour. I'm going to go wait in line for an hour or whatever for good barbecue. Like we all have the majority of us all have a, a pretty good burger, usually within five to seven minutes of where we live. And within 15 minutes is usually a fantastic burger. I mean, that's just, 
that's just the the American diet and and our consumption and our love of burgers. And I'm I'm right there with them. So, uh, you know, you if we're only picking five, the amount of people who are going to say you left off, you know, will just be a huge list. And they would be right, you know, but that's the that's the fun of it. Some overlapping choices. So I have my list of just sort of 10 off the cuff. This is what occurred to me that I can pick from. Uh, I will say, I, I, I feel like one of the ways that you know you're a Houstonian is like if you've moved here from out of town is when you have an argument with somebody about where to find the best burgers. That's one of the criteria. I like it. All right. Well, I'm going to, since it's, uh, since you're the guest, I'm going to say, why don't you go first? Pick your, pick your first burger and then we'll just go back and forth. Okay. Well, I know there's a few that you and I both love. And so I'm going to try to avoid that initially. Uh, and I'm going to go with one that I had just recently that usually makes most people's lists and has held up to incredibly high quality. And that's uh Lankford, Lankford grocery in the Montrose region. You know, kind of just tucked away among a bunch of townhomes. There's, you know, these six-figure, high six-figure townhomes. Is there suddenly this oasis of burger love? Uh, it's just, it's old school. You walk up to the counter and get it. It's a thick, juicy type burger. These aren't flat burgers, patty burgers, or you know, even smash burgers of that sort. You know, as we all know, there's different styles of burgers. Um, and it's just the quality is always great. There's a good cross selection of different burgers if you want to customize, but it's not it's not like 30 burgers on the list either. And, you know, the fries are hand cut. Fries are great. Their onion rings are respectable, respectable. It's just and it's just a great experience eating there. So Langford makes my first pick. All right. Well, you you left the door open for me, so I'm going to I'm going to walk through it. I'm going to take the. Burger Chan Burger is my number one pick. Obviously, you know, they just moved to a new location, uh, very conveniently located near the Galleria in the same building that our office is in. And, you know, I, I thought that, that Click Virtual Food Hall did a good job of recreating the Burger Chan experience, but, but nothing really matches having it hot and fresh. And I like the, I've decided, I like the two, the two smaller patties uh, with cheese and then the usual veggies. And then you can get their scallion aioli or the sambal mayo or whatever. It really kind of sets a burger chan burger apart. But, but that's my first pick. I, you know, I left it there for you because you know how much I love it. And, and Diane and Willett who run it are amazing people. Uh, and I will always be going to burger chan as long as they're open. All right. What is your second burger pick? My second burger, I'm going to go with another old school Houston sort of tradition one. That's Stanton City Bites. That's on the edge of downtown. Uh, for a long time, they didn't really even have a dining room. They had like two small tables. It was kind of, it was funny. Um, and so you almost got used to like, well, you're going to eat it on the hood of your car, you know, uh, or if you work or live nearby, you could take it home. But that's what we usually did. 
Uh, and then they expanded and got a dining room. It Because of COVID, depending on when you go there, it's been closed. The dining room's been closed. You can only get it to go. But, um, uh, you know, that's one of the please check back. But just the quality is fantastic. There's a nice little char on the outside. It's it's a thicker patty. The quality of the bun is excellent. The ratio of uh, burger to bun is fantastic. You know, the toppings all work well. Um, the juicy level, it's just that'll always be a top five burger as long as they're executing the way they are. All right. For my second pick, uh, again, I feel like you've kind of left the door open for me. So I'm going to take the cheeseburger in paradise at Brazil. This is a twin patty cheeseburger, a bacon cheeseburger with a house-made jalapeno sauce on it. It's, you know, it's not really spicy. It's more kind of, it's got a little bit of heat. It's, it's a little bit of tang, but it, it does provide like a, a nice contrast with the, the really fatty, rich flavor of the, the burger, the meat, the cheese, the bacon. So uh, that has become a, a real favorite of mine and, uh, you know, something that I, I find myself going back to uh, again and again. Good call. You, you actually turned me on to that and it's, uh, it's fantastic. All right. Burger number three. Um, rather than go old school, I'm going to go new school and, uh, a burger that you and I both shared was at night shift bar. Uh, this is a Monday night experience. And, um, I was just blown away by how delicious it was. Uh, wow. It's just like, if you order it medium rare, it comes out medium rare. Uh, just the accoutrement with it, you, the churros afterwards, if you want to get that. Um, like you hope that a bar that serves, you know, bar food, you know, that, that they're not just kind of phoning it in and, you know, most places, you know, that really respect that kind of ideal are, are equal to the task, but man, they really, they exceed the bar here. It's just, that's a fantastic burger. Yeah. There's a lot of these kind of smash burgers that are circulating around town. And I've got, I've got a couple that, you know, we'll see how kind of you pick and I pick, but. Uh, yeah, that, that Monday night burger at night shift is absolutely killer. All right. For my third pick, I am going to go with the pharmacy burger at La Lucha in the Heights. Uh, this is, you know, Bobby Matos, uh, one of my favorite chefs in town. It's, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of old school in its approach. It's a pretty simple affair. Uh, it's wrapped in the same kind of colored paper. It looks like a little like a Whataburger, but, but better quality, you know, uh, especially when it comes to the beef and bun and it's just a gooey, greasy, messy sandwich. And it's, it's utterly craveable. Yeah. Good call. And the fried chicken is amazing. Yeah. And the oysters and the champagne and the great tequila and mezcal selection and just how pretty the dining room is. Yeah. But La Lucha checks a lot of boxes. Yeah. All right. What is your fourth burger? All right, we don't want to just stay in the loop here. Um, another old school, you know, it's hard to get away from the ones that have really established themselves and continue to just put out, you know, what they what, what made them famous. And that's uh, Tukey's down in Clear Lake. I had an old friend who dragged me down there. I'm like, why are we driving all this way for a burger? And then we got there and I was like, man, I knew why it was the cheeseburger. There is fantastic. I think they have like maybe four or five burgers and there's some customization, but it's pretty simple and pretty old school, thick style. Once again, uh, just well executed uh, and a great old school environment. All right. I think for my fourth pick, I'm going to go, 
I'm going to go upscale. No, you know what? I'm going to go, I'm going to go new. I'm going to go like maybe one of the newest burger options in Houston. I'm going to. Hello audience. Due to a technical issue, we could not hear Eric's fourth burger pick, but no fear. Eric's robot voice is here. With his fourth burger selection, Eric selects the classic Butcher's Burger from the Butcher's Burger at Post Houston. It is yummy, I am told. We now return you to your regular Eric voice. You know, I, I like these like thinner smash burger style burgers, but I also love just a thick, beefy burger that you can really sink your teeth into. And, you know, this is from the, the folks behind Salt and Time in Austin and now at the Post. And it's got this just incredible beefy flavor. They get the super melty layer of cheese on it. It's a, it's a real kind of simple affair that just shows off the quality of this really great beef. And so the classic butcher's burger is my fourth burger pick. Nice. So we get to the fifth and this is where you like, whenever you're making these kind of lists, you realize everyone you're leaving off, you know, uh, the messages I'll get the text, you know, whatever. Um, just as a subset, I would talk about places like I love the FM burger, which is similar to the pharmacy burger, uh, that they do. Uh, you know, I love Christian's tailgate, uh, the atmosphere at Bubba's burger there under West Park cannot be beat. Uh, it's a decent, good burger, but you know, it's just the atmosphere is incredible. Uh, and interlopers from Dallas, like rodeo goat, rodeo goat does a good name, uh, a good job brother. Uh, but for my last choice, I'm going to go with, uh, you know, when you get to see how something's made and you get to see the behind the scenes, sometimes you can appreciate it more. So I am going with Killen's STQ burger. They include some brisket chuck added into the blend. So is it a strict 80-20 blend? It's just, it's a good fatty, juicy burger. The fries are hand cut. You know, no corners are cut on this. You know, Ronnie Killen, you know, he's never going to phone something like this in. And, and having worked there and seen how they did it and had it many times, it's a fantastic burger. And I stand by that. Yeah, you know, I, I love that burger. And it's those French onion soup onions that have just been cooked down into basically like nothing that, that really set that thing apart for me. And, and frankly, just some of the best onion rings in the city are at Kellen's SDQ. And that alone makes that burger worth ordering in my opinion. Okay. So you're fifth. Remember these are the, all the ones you're going to be living on and, you know, throw in some honorable mentions if you like, but that's your call. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought that you were going to poach some of my top picks. And so I, I have all these, these other ones that I would give a shout out to, uh, you know, just a couple of quick honorable mentions. I think the, the booze burger smash burger pop-up that Joseph Boudreaux is doing at the tipping point coffee shop in the Heights is really killer. I like the steak burger. Kenny's and Ziggy's again, a thick patty that uses beef from Pat LaFrida, the very celebrated, New York butcher shop, New Jersey. Yeah. Yep. Thank you. But, you know, I think, uh, you know, I think I'm going to close with, uh, you know, price counts, you know, and, and the, the sublime joy of a $6 cheeseburger cannot be understated. And so for me, I'm going to go with the Chango burger at monkey's tail. 
it's a real like simple little smash burger. Uh, it's topped with kind of the usual stuff, but it has relish and a Valentina mayo that give it like a little bit of tang, a little bit of heat. Like I said, six bucks for a single patty, $9 beer and shot specials. If you, if you want to go that route too. Um, but I like the service. I like the atmosphere. I like how welcoming it is. And so uh, the Chango burger at monkey's tail is my fifth and final burger draft. Yeah. Good call. I mean, I, I thought about, you know, cause hubcap has been on my list for so long and I still love hubcap, but you know, maybe, you know, I mean, I've just, your list changed over time. The smokehouse burger up in Tejas, uh, Tejas burger. Is, oh, in- that's a great burger. Yeah. That's yeah, smoke- yeah a- we did. I thought about the uh, Pappas burger. I really like what they do. I eat that one pretty regularly. Uh, Have you had the Henderson and Kane burger that they only do on Thursdays? No, but I've heard wonderful things about it. Yeah, so have I. And I keep trying to talk him into doing it more than that. And he has his his reasons why he won't. And I'll let him share those with you. <laughs> All right. Well, I got to say, this was a lot of fun. And you know what? I'll put up a little, uh, I'll put up a poll on Instagram. I like it. With your picks and my picks. And we will let people vote who had the better top five burger list. I remember... Back when I'm way back in the day, this has got to be like 10 years ago, we're working on a a book uh, called The Fearless Critic, you know, that kind of went around and and it was this sort of small crowdsourced uh, book on restaurant reviews. And when we went, when we were doing burgers, you know, we'd have these email recaps at night from the staff doing it. And when we did burgers, you get back and there would be like a hundred emails in your inbox just on the burgers. Yeah. Everyone has got an opinion and equally valid uh and uh, i'm always open to a new one and to traveling to get a new one so i'd love to hear what people have to say i completely agree and and you know i'm sure we'll get all sorts of messages from how could you have left off this that or the other but you know on on this day in in this particular mood this is what we went with and uh so i'm gonna say uh michael thank you very much It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. And I will be right back with Keith Goldston and Julie Dalton. I am joined this week by two of the sommeliers at the Post Oak, Tillman Fertitta's luxury hotel in the Galleria area. Let me introduce you separately so people can hear your voices. Keith Goldston, welcome to the show. Uh, Eric, thank you so much. Uh, really excited to be here. Julie Dalton, thanks for doing this. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Keith, let me start with you. Uh, you are a master sommelier. There aren't too many of those in the world. Maybe just talk a little bit about how you got into the, the world of wine and how you wound up in, in Houston. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, certainly not a, a career path that, you know, like in elementary school, what do you want to do when you grow up? Uh, I still think I'm trying to figure that out. Um, but I just got really lucky. I was in fine dining restaurants at 16 because I really wanted a motorcycle and there was zero chance my mom was going to buy me one. So started working right away. And the GM of the restaurant believed in training and education of his staff and next thing I knew, I was at Robert Mondavi Winery barrel tasting with Robert Mondavi 
And I went, wow, this old guy's got some pretty cool stories. And somehow between the trainings, the education, my GM's passion, they started to kind of shake through the 16-year-old head of mine at the time that there was more to just grapes making wine, that there was all this world of history and culture and significance with it. And I got the bug, started to fall in love with it, and then worked restaurants for another 10 years. And then I was that annoying server um, working at Espago and asking about, why don't we have this wine on the wine list? And they said, well, you seem interested, Keith, why don't you help out with the wine program? And we can work to try to get that on. So part-time led to full-time. And, you know, a couple of years into that, I heard about this whole court of master sommelier and exam and never finished college. So I thought it'd be a cool way to kind of challenge myself on something I loved and uh, passed my MS in 2001. I was 29 years old and have been in restaurants running wine programs pretty much ever since. And then about four and a half years ago, um, someone reached out to me and said, would you like to cut off your hair, move to Texas and take a corporate job? <laughs> and uh, I didn't care about the hair, um, the corporate job. I'm like, what company? And then um, Texas, I'm like, okay, as long as it's not Dallas. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That seems like a good, a good place to bring Julie in on this. Julie, just maybe give us, you're an advanced sommelier, so... Uh, maybe just give us kind of the brief version of, of how you got into the world of wine and, and made your way to Texas. Wow. So um, I actually got into wine because I was in Texas, believe it or not. I was um, waiting tables at Guido's when I was an undergrad. And um, I learned that I could make more money if I knew just a little bit about wine because I could sell more. It was a fiscal decision to learn about wine. The more <laughs> I knew, the more I could sell. And the, if the more you sell, the more money you make. So as I was learning, my first book was Wine for Dummies. The more I was learning, the more I was like, wow, this is fascinating stuff. And as a scientist, my background is in the life sciences. Um, in science, everything is classified. Um, classification is the most important thing and not the most important thing, but one of the most important things in, in biology is, is how something is classified. And so it made, made it easier to understand wine because wine is also, I mean, wine is a biological product and it has a classification. And my background is in um, marine biology and molecular. So I have a lot of the chemical biological background that really made learning about the entire process of wine, not only very easy, but very fascinating. It, because I could understand the classification and the biology of it, it made learning about the history much more interesting. So, um, so it was really a fiscal decision. I'm like, if I can learn about wine, I can sell more, I make more money. But in that process, I was tasting a lot too. Um, and you know, when I was in college at that time, my rent was $300 a month. Okay. And I was making as a college student in the early nineties, a thousand bucks a week. So what do you think I was spending my money on? It wasn't beer. <laughs> it was wine as a college student. So, um, so I just was learning for fun. And, um, and when I moved to, I, I worked in Houston for a year after college. Um, I was working on the human genome project um, uh, at the Baylor College of Medicine, but I was still waiting tables part-time because I just loved hospitality. And I loved that side of 
things. And also I was making peanuts, you know, I was a monkey with a pipette in those days. So I was making no money in the lab and I was making more money waiting tables for half the hours. I was making twice the money working half the hours by waiting tables at night when I got home from work. And, and I remember the owner of this little restaurant called Cafe Beignet on Westheimer. I don't, it used to be right next to the Randalls. I don't know if it, I don't know what is there in that space now, but, um, or it's on Sage West. Anyway, maybe San Felipe and Sage. Anyway, you know where I'm talking about. Um, I sold two people ordered the same glass of wine and I suggested they just have a bottle and the owner went ballistic. He was so shocked that I was able to sell the bottle. And I was like, um, it's easy, but they're both going to have two glasses. Why not? So it just, I mean, what I thought was common sense, I guess other restaurant owners thought was brilliance. To me, it wasn't brilliance. It was just common sense, but, um, but it was just something that I just kept near and dear to my heart. And I moved to Maryland to, um, for my, uh, first real job in the biotech business. And I didn't know anybody. So I was working at a wine shop for fun, um, to, to, because it was something that I had developed a passion for over the years. And also it, I thought it would be a cool way to meet people. And so I was working in a wine shop, working um, in the biotech business and sales. And then a company I was working for had a, uh, like a, a benefit to pay for graduate education. So I decided to get my um, MS in biotechnology and an MBA through Johns Hopkins that the company paid for. So I was like, I may as well do it. Um, um, and so, but as soon as that was over, my friend was opening up a wine bar and as soon as my graduate work was over, I was like, listen, if you're opening up a wine bar, you need a sommelier. And he's like, Julie, I thought you'd never ask. And I said, well, you know, I'm working full-time with Biorad. And he's like, I don't care. Just, just make the program. I had no budget. It was a gift. I had no budget. I, I cut my teeth on this teeny tiny little neighborhood program. And, and that's when I got the bug and everybody was calling me the sommelier. And I'm like, no, that's such a snobby thing. I don't want to be a sommelier. It sounds so snooty. And um, after like a year of running this program, um, I decided, well, maybe I should at least look into this credential and see what it's about. Um, sorry, you asked for the short story. This is I, not a short story. I, I <laughs> but, did, but, um, but yeah, the company, the company who hired you or who, who paid for you to go to graduate school must have been thrilled by this decision. <laughs> I was like, I was like, I don't need that, you know? Um, but no, I did actually, I did both for, um, four years. So I, I was, I was moonlighting as a sommelier since 06. And I finally left the world of biotech in 2010, once I passed my advanced. So, so while I was still working at biotech, I was still working in biotech. I passed my advanced. I wasn't working in the restaurant full-time yet. Um, so that when that, that was the wake up call when I passed my advanced on the first time through while still working full-time in biotech, I was like, you know what, you need to be doing this. And, and at that point I was like, you know, the money doesn't matter anymore. Like do what you love and the money will come. And, and I know that's a trite thing to say. Um, but it, I, I truly believe it will. All right, Keith, let me let me swing this back to you then. You like you said, you, you had to cut your hair and move to Texas, but what was the appeal for you of coming to the post oak? Um, I mean, one of the big appeals was, you know, uh 
in the interview with Tillman and kind of learning and finding out about the job and his vision for what he wanted to build here was the idea that he truly wanted to build a world-class hotel and to offer, you know, the best of the best for the people who are willing to pay for it. And part of that was having a an epic wine program. So, you know, no lie, the chance to, you know, spend some, millions of someone else's dollars to put together a wine program is awfully tempting. Um, it was also exciting kind of looking at my career because it was just like, wow, I opened Bellagio. So I, I've opened a big luxurious hotel before. Um, I worked with Charlie Palmer at Mandalay Bay at Oriel with the crazy four-story wine tower. So I've worked on big, big wine programs, you know, that were like telephone books. And, you know, I also understood how important it was building a great team. So the ability to, you know, buy like crazy, build something from scratch was super tempting. And then the chance to, you know, really go out and build an amazing team right from the get-go and kind of have that sense of community and like, let's, let's swing for the fences. Let's go for the home run. Um, that was really attractive and like, oh, this is going to be kind of fun. And then, you know, it was a really pleasant surprise that um, ended up loving Houston a lot more, you know, at, you know, I figured oh, I was in DC and I'm moving my way back to the West coast of California. And I'm like, well, at least I'm halfway there. I'm getting closer. But now after being here for a while, it's like, it's a great city. Very, very, you know, I love the international kind of vibe of it. Great food, great bar scene, and just the cost of living. It makes it really, really um, easy to enjoy life. Yeah. Julie, I mean, what about you? I mean, obviously you were working on the East coast, you know, you had, you had some ties to Houston, obviously you, you've lived in Galveston, but, but what about the post Oak specifically? made it seem like the right move for your career? Well, that answer is very easy. It's called <laughs> Keith Goldston. <laughs> so Keith, so when I was learning how to taste, um, the the um, the tasting group that I was tasting with was the original one that Keith Goldston built when he was in DC working with Charlie Palmer Steak. Um, and we were at a, we were at an, a master's exam. I had just passed service that year and I was standing in a circle and Keith was talking about this sweet new gig he just got where he was building a grand award winning wine list from the ground up. And he was saying yes to every single allocation and he was looking to build a team. And I was just like, hmm, hmm, Baltimore has been great, but this would be really cool. And so I, I texted him the very next day. I was like, hey, I didn't want to, you know, like talk to you about this then, but I would I might be interested. And and the rest is history. He made it happen he and Scott Tarwater made it happen. So, um, so yeah, it was easy to come back to Houston because, um, when I left Houston in 2000 to come to Maryland, I was kind of sad about it. I was, I had just moved to Houston after college and I really loved the city. And I was like, Oh man, this is, seems like a great city. I'm sad to leave it, but you know, this is, I, I need to go for, for work. And, um, and I'd had opportunities pop up in New York and San Francisco, but to Keith's point, the, <laughs> Being able to live in a city that has everything and it's an affordable cost of living. And if you want New York and if you want San Francisco, it's not that expensive to get there being in the middle of the country. It's you can have all of those things, but still have an affordable cost of living. It just didn't make fiscal sense to take a gig in New York or San Francisco. It just it really didn't. But 
the short well, and, answer and, to your and question. it's not and it's not often a billionaire says you know build me a top ranked <laughs> wine program here's like four or five million dollars to go do it basically here's a blank check exactly and so i a it was keith b it was grand award winning wine list from the ground up and c it was houston so so there yeah, a, a couple quick things to kind of add on to that really quick, Eric, that was really fun is that tasting group started in DC, like in 2003. And when you're going through your MS uh, tasting, there's a certain, we call it the grid, and there's a cadence to the grid. And, you know, ultimately, you can kind of make it your own. So that group in DC was tasting the grid that I kind of the flow that I came up with and use some of the same vocabulary that I had put into the grid. And the first time I ever met Julie was at her advanced exam when she passed on her first shot. And there's this person sitting across from the table from me because I was one of the examiners and she's using the grid. And I'm like, He's using your grid. And I'm like, wait a second, who is this? And (laughs) why is she tasting like this? How, what's going on? But then it's like, whoa, but she's crushing it and doing awesome. So it's like, woohoo, this is, this is, one of those crazy land ripple effects where you don't realize sometimes what you start, um, where it may uh, end up ultimately impacting. So it was kind of a cool way. And then like afterwards realizing that she was going to the tasting group, had tons of friends in common and, you know, have been friends ever since. And, and just for people who, who aren't familiar with the process of becoming an advanced or a master sommelier, just explain what the, the tasting is. Um, well, the, the, both exams are three parts and you have to get either 60% of the points on the advanced or 75% on the masters. And the three parts are service where it's like a mock restaurant. We might ask you to decant, you know, serve wine, open champagne, make cocktails, anything that could happen in a real world restaurant. Then there's the theory element where basically in the master's level, you get asked questions for an hour. And anything that's on a label that has legal definition is fair game. Anything in a restaurant is pretty much fair game. And at the advanced level, it's written, but very similar premise. And then there's the tasting component of both. And walk into a room, there are six wines poured. And when the exam starts, you're given 25 minutes to taste all six wines and describe the sight, the smell, the taste, and then make a really darn good guess as to exactly what the wine is, even down to like the village in Burgundy, because we have assigned points to multiple descriptors and you need to get 60% of those at the advanced level, 75% at the masters. So it is a, a fun, challenging thing that, you know, a game we play. <laughs> All right. So you come to Houston. It's How do you... Humbling. How do you, how do you build a wine inventory from scratch? And and like, what are the, like, what are the the key components? And and maybe how would you say the seller at the post oak maybe sets itself apart from uh, some of the other places around town? Um, Great question. Um, It was a combination of many, many factors. Um, We were lucky that um, Tillman had a restaurant in New York, a Vic and Anthony steakhouse and they had shut down. So there was a little bit, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars worth of wine from that, but it was some older vintage Bordeaux, Napa cabs. And that kind of gave us a little bit of library age out of the get-go that we were able to clear into Texas, legally jump through the loopholes we had to, to bring it in. So having that little bit of age as the core was a great beginning. 
Um, then it was like reaching out to people like uh, Bettina Seychelles, who's at Laurel Glen and saying, hey, we've got this great program. Do you have any library releases? We'll take all of it. And, you know, her coming through with like 14 vintages of wine. I was like, that is amazing. Um, and then just doing some crazy stuff. I remember uh, Travis Hinkle, who was the opening wine director for the Post Oak Hotel, another advanced sommelier who's now working at Del Frisco's for us. Um, Rare Wine Company, great, great importer. And they have one of the best Madeira books in the U.S. And they always do like a release of Madeiras. And it's usually, a you know, a solid one page, you know, legal size offering of old vintage Madeiras. And we we're kind of looking through it and we're like, what do we pick? What do we pick? And all of a sudden I just looked at Travis. I'm like, what if we took all of it? Just said yes to every bottle. I'm like, we'd have our Madeira section taken care of. And he just looked at me. He's like, that is insane. And yes, let's go for it. So, I think he told you it wasn't a good idea. Didn't he say, I don't think that's a good idea. And look, we've, we've had to re-up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, so just being able to kind of, you know, I, we wrote or I put together like basically a manifesto of what we were going to try to do for the program. Um, I distinctly remember like dining at Burns and hearing their philosophy that whenever you buy a wine, it should be at least two of three things, either great vintage, great producer or great appellation. And as long as you get two of those three, you should buy it. And if it's all three of the three, then buy lots of it. So we just basically kind of sat down with everyone in town and use that as a guide. And then also, you know, sitting down with Julie Travis and then Sean Pravat, who was the wine director at Masters, who's now took Travis's spot um, over at the hotel and is also an advanced song. But we basically broke up the world of wine and said, what are the significant regions? What are the legendary producers? And let's just start getting them into the program whatever it takes to make it happen. So it was just that kind of overall vision. And I think the fact that we had four really talented people who have drank a lot of wine, enjoyed a lot of wine, being able to go, okay, this is our chance to build the, you know, an epic wine list from scratch. Who do we want on there? And it was a really fun way to do it without having that baggage of some bad buyer in the past who went like deep on, you know, Something. 50 cases of something. I just won't name names, but <laughs> <laughs> I would love it if you would name names, but no, no, of course not. Um, but, but Julie, I guess talk about maybe like the, the balance between like, you've got to, you, you know, you've got to have certain names, you, you know, you've got to have a certain, you know, mix of varietals, but, but, you know, it also, it also has to sell. So, so maybe like, what are the sort of the compromises when it comes to, you know, you may not love certain brands, but you know that they'll move versus, you know, like hipper, maybe more offbeat choices that like, you know, a sommelier, like that, that would basically impress your, your som friends. So I, I tend to, so at the wine bar, it's so. We're, we're coming to the wine bar for sure. Right. Yeah. So at the steakhouse. So, okay. The, <laughs> the aha moment for me with wine at Guido's was when somebody left for me a bottle, uh, a, a, an incomplete, an unfinished bottle of silver Oak Alexander Valley. This was in 1990, probably six. 
So I don't know what the vintage would have been 91, 92. Um, but it, it was the first time I had a wine that made me stop and say, wow, this is, this is, this is real wine. This is what, this is, this isn't just what a college kid buys. Um, and so for the longest time, silver Oak held was a measuring stick for me in terms of quality. And, um, and in a steakhouse, it's very much that as well. I mean, a lot of people, they're like, okay, silver Oak is my go-to. I'm always going to have silver Oak on a list because it, for me was my gateway. It, it was, it was the wine that brought me into wine. I'm 100%. And, and for the longest time, I was only Napa Valley. I didn't care about any, I didn't care about old world wines. I thought they were thin and, you know, like boring and acidic. And I had the classic steakhouse cowboy palette, if I can say that. Um, I want big, rich, you know, like big, rich, full-bodied, you know, full throttle red wines. And then as I started really learning about wine, and tasting it, I started to really appreciate the subtlety and the nuance. So, so because I came from the classic Napa Valley fruit forward palette, and because I have since become, I still have an appreciation for that. And I appreciate how it brings people into the world of wine. I don't, I don't, I don't care what you drink as long as you're drinking wine, because that keeps me employed. Um, but I and and but as in a wine list, it's very important to have a mix. You can't, you it's I never want to be uh um like what's the word I'm looking for? I don't want to be too esoteric, you know. I want there to be some approachability on the wine list for for multiple reasons. A, I want people to not feel threatened by my wine list, but also if, if I'm busy, if I'm in the weeds and I can't get to the table to talk to you, I will happily take your order of silver Oak. <laughs> so, so in the steakhouse, that was a lot of my thinking um, at the wine bar. I'm able to, to get to touch most tables more frequently, but, um, but I still think it's important to have both. You can't, you can't alienate your guests. You want your guests to feel comfortable. And if that means seeing, um, you know, like I have Chateau Saint-Michel Chardonnay in the shop. I have, um, and I mean nothing against these producers, but you can find them anywhere. And so I have some of those in the shop, in the, in the wine bar that, that are approachable. But I also intentionally at the wine bar, I don't offer a Pinot Grigio by glass, but I have an Etna Bianco. And since then I've turned so many people on to at Nabiaco and learn and teaching people that there is another unoaked, crisp, clean white wine from Italy that if you like Pinot Grigio, you're going to love. Every single person who's asked for Pinot Grigio, I've poured them at Nabiaco and they love it. So that's my, again, wordy answer to your question. Don't alienate, don't educate, educate by accident. You know, like I don't want to educate on purpose. I want to educate by accident. Does that make sense? No, ab absolutely. And let's, let's, let's just take like a half a step back and sort of talk about Stella's, which is the new wine bar that just opened on the property. I mean, there are, there are so many places to drink wine. How, how did you sort of decide that, that a dedicated wine bar was the right addition to that mix? Keith, you know, the background, I, I mean, you just told me that this was something that was going to happen. And I was like, um, sign me up. So Keith, you know more 
about how it came to be. I mean, we had just been pushing and pushing from day one. It was one of those things that um, we always thought it'd be a wonderful addition to the property and the hotel. And I mean, there was even some debate when we first opened that um, one rendering had craft F&B um, as a wine bar. And then the brew pub in Burgers won out um, and it's a great spot, but it was one of those things we'd always been kind of looking with that vision of, God, we've got this great wine list. It'd be really cool to have a spot to enjoy it. Um, and actually, in all honesty, I think a little bit of it was COVID survival. Um, there was a stretch, gosh, wow, two years ago, um, when we first kind of went into lockdown and coming out of lockdown, where we ended up putting the wine list online and in a matter of one month sold almost $200,000 worth of wine. And that really opened Tillman's eyes. And he was just like, wow, I never thought selling wine could help keep the, the lights on and pay people. He's always like, I thought it was extra. And he's like, <clears throat> but he goes, you know, acknowledge that that, wow, that really was a significant thing. And that, you know, the wine list here is something pretty special. So, you know, um, the corner of the hotel where it's at, um, the retail store 29 North was there and it had a little bit bigger footprint than it possibly needed. Um, so our, you know, development team was like, what if we give you half of this, you know, we could give you a great outdoor patio. Would that be a good spot to maybe do a, you know, retail shop slash wine bar? And we're like, yeah, absolutely. Cause you just say yes first, you figure out the details later. Um, and then as we kept going, we're like, well, how about some more tables? How about some more chairs? How about uh, we make this more of a wine bar first and foremost with retail component of it second. And luckily uh, Tillman and his wife Paige had one of like their best dates ever at Wally's in Beverly Hills. And to the point where they even named one of their dogs Wally and just absolutely loves that place. So it was an easy vision for him to kind of buy into once he's like, I want something like Wally's in Beverly Hills. Can we do that? And I'm like, well, we've got a grand award wine list. They do. It's about the only other wine bar I can think of where you can go crazy drinking like you can. Um, so that really kind of helped get them committed to making Stella's happen and absolutely thrilled with it. And you know, he's already, you know, excited and, you know, like a shark that's always swimming. He's like, we need to do more Stella's now. And it's like, whoa, all right. We haven't even <laughs> all right. And then Julie, I know you, you kind of alluded to this, that you sort of got told that this was happening and, and, and sort of volunteered, but what about it appealed to you? I mean, what, you know, making the, you know, making the move from Mastro's to Stella's, what, what was, uh, what guided that decision? So, I've always had my vision of myself, had a vision of myself um, carrying a case of wine um, in a wine shop and stacking it on a shelf. Like when I see a happy, like Julie's happy place with wine, I'm in a wine bar, but it, but it was also a retail space too. I've always seen, I know exactly what I'm wearing. I, I, I see the colors behind me. Like it's always been a vision and, um, and I always wanted my own wine bar, but I never, you know, I'm not 
that well connected with super wealthy people that, and I don't have any money myself. So, so being able to do this with someone else's money is just the, a, such a gift. And I'm, this is my first day off in a month, but I don't, I'm not unhappy about that because I'm happy where I am. It's um, it's it, this is a more, this is a, this is a space where people it's I'm there's a captive audience who's coming into a wine bar you know they they want to drink wine they want to ask questions about wine they they want to talk about wine our wine list even though we sell a ton of wine at Mastro's I still feel like it would get lost in in the other pieces of Mastro's there's so much other stimulation going on there's live music there's um just so much to look at and like everything's a show, you know, everything is bright lights and action. And, and even if we're able to get some great wines on the table, it still is ancillary to everything else that's happening in the restaurant. And I remember when we first opened, I remember telling Keith, I'm like, I have never in my entire career as a sommelier tasted as much Grand Cru Burgundy or classified growth Bordeaux in a, I'm in the weeds situation, you know, where you're having to decant a 96 Pichon Lalande in, in two minutes. And cause you've got to go to the next table to, you know, it's, it's, it was, it, I felt like as happy as I was being able to experience these wines and ha help other people experience these wines. It still, it didn't feel respectful. <laughs> and I feel like in a wine bar, you're able to show more respect to the wine. But really the first and foremost is I've always, I've worked in a situation like Stella's before in Baltimore, there was a little um, wine bar uh, retail space called Chesapeake Wine Company. And that's the place where I worked at when I first moved to Baltimore, when I said I moved, I wanted to have a place where I could meet people and learn more about wine. And that was just had just had such fond memories for me. And it was, I just was always happy every time I worked there. And, and it's, and I always wanted to get back there in some way, shape or form and Stella's is it. All right. So you've been open for a few weeks. Um, how's it going? Like, is it, is it meeting your expectations or people like trying the, the more obscure stuff? They are, but there aren't that many things. I mean, I don't think there, I mean, it's easy for me to say, I don't think there are that many obscure things on the list. Keith, do you think there are that many obscure things on the list? I, I think it walks a really nice balance. Like it, and, you know, and to answer your bigger question too, Erica, like it, it is absolutely, I won't want to say exceeding expectations because we always believed in it, but just for a cold January, it has been gangbusters out of the get-go. And, you know, just the response, the fact that there's already been easily, I can think of at least seven or eight different people who have been in multiple times. And I'm sure Julie can name off pretty much all of them. So the response of the consumers, the people coming in, the vibe, the energy, the sales, even with, you know, seven tables and five bar stools has been great. And the flights we offer, you know, what is it? 10 flights? Seven. Seven flights. Um, so it's a great way to explore and try some of these, you know, a little bit more esoteric wines. Um, but it's a good, it's a solid balance. It is certainly nowhere near as mainstream as say the by the glass offerings at Mains, uh, Mastro's. 
Um, but it's certainly not going to be, uh, you know, a natural wine bar with a bunch of really, you know, natty, dirty, petty type of wines. Oh, oh, good. See, you, you led me right into my next topic because I love to, I love to ask, uh, particularly, you know, advanced and master sommeliers, what they think about natural wine and, and kind of what that's, what its place in the wine world should be. Well, the good news is there are a lot of quote unquote natural winemakers that we love. So the most highly allocated, most expensive wine in the world, Domaine de la Romanée Conti in Burgundy, they use natural yeast, they use minimal filtering, they're biodynamic. So, I mean, the, the question is what is natural? Um, you know, um, are, are you going to like, I mean, that is the question. What is natural, Eric? Are you saying like, is it, is it, there, there are naturally fermented wines, wines where yeasts aren't added, um, that are absolutely clean and delicious. Conversely, there are naturally fermented wines where it is not clean and delicious and smells like, you know, like you're, you're drinking, you're drinking the, you know, apple cider vinegar with the mother. Like, that's not what I want to drink. <laughs> I mean, um, so it's, I think the natural definition has not been defined. And if, if we were to look at Alice firing and her, her definition for natural wine is nothing added, nothing taken away. There are plenty of wines made in that style that, that I happily drink, but I think some people are pushing it a little too far and they're just making wines that are not pleasant to drink. Um, and, and I would just kind of, you know, I don't want to have like the get off my lawn moment, but you know, there's that part of me that kind of feels like we've been doing this for thousands of years. We have learned certain lessons and wine should bring you happiness and joy. And, you know, there's, you can make a wine as Julie points out very, very well, and that you can make it with minimal intervention. I mean, that's the beauty of it is basically, you know, you crush grapes or grapes get chucked. You don't even have to really crush grapes sometimes and fermentation happens. So we can make wines that drink well and are delicious. And there's, the, I, I just, I feel like sometimes it's a catch all for some bad, unclean winemaking. And, you know, I don't want my wines to taste like kombucha. If I want kombucha, I'm going to drink kombucha. I'm, I'm, you know, there's a place and a spot for it. Um, I mean, but the other side of it now, bigger picture, if it does help get people to drink more wine and get into the wine world, if like they've put down their kombucha to drink wine and it's their first wine, then I'm happy they're drinking wine. Um, but I just, I, I feel like we as an industry need to define it better before we can actually really truly make assessments about it. Cause it is just too gray, even in the very gray world of wine. It, there's just too, too many things that could fit in that box that aren't labeled. And then there's a lot that are labeled as it that, you know, are not necessarily the most uh, joyful things to drink, in my opinion. All right. Well, let me, uh, let, me, let me wrap this up with just a couple of quick ones. Um, Julie, I mean, you, like I said, you've, you've been open at Stella's for just a few weeks. How would you kind of like to see it evolve over the next six months or, or maybe for the, uh, for the first year? 
I would love for it to be, um, I want, I want to see wine classes once a week where people can come in and learn about wine without feeling, um, sometimes people are afraid to learn about wine because they think they're just intimidated by it. I, I want us to, I want us, I want the evolution to be a place where anybody can come, whether you are a professional or a novice and you can come and drink wine without learning or drink wine while learning. And it's completely up to you. Uh, I want to be a place where we're known for having the classics. I want to be a place where we're known for having cool hip stuff. I want to be a place where industry comes and hangs out after work. I mean, we're only open until midnight, but you know, maybe we can capture some people on a Sunday or a Monday. Um, and I want, I want it to be a place for everyone. Uh, it, and I feel like that's trite. I feel like that's, um, I don't know. I, I just, I want it to, I, my, my most profound or what I want Stella's to be is a very approachable place for wine. Wine is so intimidating. It's so, it's everyone who comes, a lot of people who come in, they're like, oh, I'm no connoisseur. I, you don't have to be a connoisseur. You don't have to know what you like. Let me just ask you three questions. First of all, do you want red or white? Great. With Once you define if you want red or white or rosé, I ask you three questions and we'll figure it out and, and we can figure it out together. And guess what? If you don't like it, you don't have to pay for it. You know. <laughs> um, so it's, that's what I, I just want to dispel the myths you know, I mean, like I said, I mean, circling back to, I never wanted to be a sommelier because it sounded snobby. I, that's why I intentionally sometimes just wear an apron and don't wear a suit. You know, I, I want to be, I want it to be approachable. I want it to be fun. I want it to be easy. I, I when opening Stella's for me was like opening an extension of my home where it's, it's all cool wine. And, and I just constantly have guests coming in and, and trying wine. So that's, that's what I want it to be. It, it's funny hearing you say that, Julie, it just makes me think of like, we, we want to be like the Ted Lasso of wine bars. And if you guys haven't seen Ted Lasso yet, it's amazing because it's really about a show about kindness and respecting people. And it's just this crazy thing where you're like, oh my gosh, people are actually doing good and they're friendly and they're nice to everyone. And you know, I, I think that is something the wine world could use more of, you know, no matter what level of knowledge you have to be treated with kindness and respect and an intimidating thing like wine, you know, that's, that's what hospitality is about. And ultimately, if you can walk in there, be treated with kindness and respect, get a great glass of wine, some tasty food. That's all we ask. That's all we're, that's all we're shooting for. All right. Well, that seems like a good place to wrap up. Um, before I let you go, we have to play the lightning round. Five easy questions, five short answers. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. Julie Dalton, what is your favorite varietal? Well, that's easy, Riesling. Keith, how about you? Uh, today, I'll go with uh, Pinot Noir. <laughs> Julie, what is the first band you ever saw in concert? Poison. <laughs> Keith, how about you? Solid. Uh, for me, it was, uh, oh gosh, why am I blanking on this? It was Flock of Seagulls opened up uh, for the Thompson Twins. Hold me That's now. Funny. All right. Yes. Um, <laughs> Julie, what is your 
fast food guilty pleasure, it has to come from a restaurant with a drive-thru. Taco Bell. Keith, how about you? Ooh, yeah. Uh, probably Chick-fil-A. But Taco Bell, depending if it's during the day, Chick-fil-A, nighttime, definitely Taco Bell. <laughs> <laughs> Julie, who is your favorite Houston sports figure, past or present? Oh gosh, I'm not good with sports. I don't, I mean, sports ball? I don't know. Well, who who bought all the great wine? Who was your favorite wine guy on the rock? Oh, I mean, well, okay, so PJ Tucker. That's a great answer. Keith. Oh gosh. Um Probably just because of, I mean, taking it back, I'd, I'd have to say Nolan Ryan, just for what he did in baseball, was just one of the all-time legends. Um, and then in terms of like Houston's sports figures I've got to meet and interact with a little bit, uh, Yao Ming was awesome. Really cool person to meet and, you know, just fascinating to talk with and just like, holy cow, is he big. Yeah. <laughs> Um, all right. And then Julie, finally, uh, you know, I, I ran into you last week at, at a restaurant. Um, and I know, I know, uh, people in the restaurant business never have time to get out very much. So, so what is the new restaurant that you are dying to try? What's on your list? Uh, actually we talked about this when you were at, um, at Stella's, I want to try Jardinier. Is it new? And is it still new? New enough for new enough for the purposes of this question. Let's okay. less than a year. You're good. Keith, how about you? Um, that I gosh, I am totally at a loss. I would I Jarnera is on my list as well, too. Um, but I'd even be happy to just uh, go check out a burger at Georgia James Tavern. Why don't you give us the the website or the social media or or how people can follow what's going on at Stella's? Uh, Instagram is at Stella's Post Oak. Um, that's the only one I know. <laughs> Keith, any, any, what's the, what's the best way to keep up with what's going on on, on the property as a whole? Um, probably the uh, Instagram for the Post Oak, you know, and just also, you know, follow uh, what Tillman's up to because this is kind of. You know, he offices up on the 30th floor here. So it's kind of the uh, epicenter of Fertitta world. All right. Thank you both very much. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for having us. Yeah. You can follow me on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest Houston bar and restaurant news. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week.